Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, August the 30th, 2012. This is episode 971 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we have a really cool guest. His name is Lee Wright. And uh, he is the author of quite a few books. And he is kind of an expert on growing fruits. From the every every day to the uh, somewhat exotic but easy to maintain, a lot of the things I've talked to you about in the past, he's got a lot of experience with, done some research with. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine, get over to uh, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Check out Marjorie Wildcraft's collection of uh, DVD and information called Growing Your Groceries. And you'll learn how to do just that, how to turn that backyard into a food production machine, how to produce everything from your carbohydrate crops to your protein and everything else you can think of, whether you're on a, a large acreage or just a small suburban backyard. You can do it. She'll show you exactly how they've done it. Uh, next up today, Safe Castle Royal, as I always say, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. Uh, Vic over there has been a huge supporter of the show, not just as a sponsor, but by providing his lifetime membership program. It's worth $49 to all Survival Podcast MSB members. And he's got an incentive program going on right now. And uh, this is the first week, and that's actually the last two days of this incentive But this is for his discount club members only. Now remember, if you are MSB, you can get this membership free if you have not already done so. And listen to what he's doing. Any of his discount members this week spending at least $175 in any transaction, so you buy $175 worth of anything from him, will receive one new, uh, one, one free brand new mountain house 25-year essentials bucket. So that product is basically a, a great big bucket full of Mountain House freeze-dried pouched food, the stuff you would buy uh, off the shelves of, of a store. And in addition to getting that free bucket, they're also going to send you two life straws. You don't need any coupon codes. You don't need anything. If you order on or before August 31st, in other words, today or tomorrow, and you are a discount club member at Safe Castle. Um, and you order over at $175 worth of stuff, you're going to get the the, uh, the Mountain House Essentials Bucket and the two Life Straws for free. That's $120 worth of free top-quality prep. So you spend $175 with Vic uh, this week uh, if you're a, a Discount Club member, and basically you get $295 worth of stuff. That's pretty good for his Discount Club, and it's why I'm really... Uh, excited that he supports the MSB and the deals like that are always available to MSB members with no direct cost to them uh, because you get that discount club membership for free. And folks, even if you're not MSB, if you're looking for a good place to buy preps, Safe Castle Royal. Check them out today at prepared.pro. Best way to find Safe Castle and Backyard Food Production and all of our sponsors was always go to the Survival Podcast. Dot com first and click on their banners. You'll see them in the right-hand margin. Next, I want to remind you to uh, come see me in Hickory, North Carolina. I do have, I'm starting to put together the uh, early meet and greet. Uh, Tim uh, from uh, Old Grouse Military Surplus, Tim Glantz, is a maybe right now to be there. Uh, also, I've just heard from Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith will be there. 
And uh, uh, Ron and uh, Scott have sent me a list of the other speakers that are going to be there. I'm going to look and see who maybe out of that group would like to come attend. But it looks like a definite from Chef Keith and a high possible uh, from Tim from Old Grouse. Those are two guys you guys know very well. Great chance to meet them. Again, this is a special meetup for uh, members of the audience, not just MSB, any member of the TSP audience. So I have to do show up early. Full details will come out tomorrow on, on you know what to do and, and what have you. But it'll just be like what we did in Arlington. And again, uh, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch is a high possible. And Keith Snow seems like he's a definite now. And I'll let you know about some other people that may be there as well. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content that's available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. You'll get really great discounts and stuff like that discount club membership from Safecastle and the incentive that goes along with it this week. And he's running weekly incentives for a while. So all of you guys that are uh, that are discount club members with Vic, make sure you guys pay attention to that. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, uh, email me before you join, and I will send you a special discount code for the Member Support Brigade to thank you for your service that you can use on any membership term, and it does apply to your recurring membership costs as well. With that wrapped up, let me go ahead and introduce our uh, special guest today, Lee Reich. He's a Ph.D. and an avid farm dinner. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I'll ask him when I get him on. But it basically means more than a garden, less than a farm. Uh, he's a gardening consultant and writer who's worked in uh, plant and soil research for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Cornell University. He's the author. He's an author, most recently, uh, of the Pruning Book and Grow Fruit Naturally. He's got a whole list of other books he's written. He's doing an awful lot of research. He's here to introduce uh, to uh, to talk to us about growing fruit, growing the right fruit for your region, and how actually growing fruit can be trouble free. I hear from a lot of people that say it's really hard to grow fruit. Well, maybe you're growing the wrong fruit in the wrong place. He's going to give us some really easy stuff that can produce an awful lot of food. So, you know, going along with what we talked about with Marjorie today, turning your backyard into a food production machine. That's what it's all about for me. And with that, hey, Lee, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Good to be here. Hey, um, I just told the audience quite a bit about you. You call yourself a, a farm, farm, farm dinner? How do you Farm dinner. Here? Farm dinner. What do, you, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, farm dinner is uh, more than a gardener and less than a farmer. And the way it came about was I used to have uh, just uh, my original property was only three quarters of an acre, and it was very intensely planted. But yeah, you can grow a lot on three quarters of an acre. I had fruits, vegetables, and you know, lawn and, and flowers too. But uh, I'm really concentrating on growing my own food. And then, uh, so that was something you know. I could do it in my spare time and, and very easy and easy to do. And then uh, I got another acre and a half and a little more. And since I got, since I write about gardening and agriculture, I thought since I had this other acre and a half, I would like, for instance, I grow pawpaws. So I had two pawpaw trees originally, so I thought maybe I should grow a lot of variety so I could check them out. So I planted 20 pawpaw trees and I planted like 20 hardy kiwi fruits and then I planted chestnuts. So I planted all these other things and, Things sort of got out of hand, but uh, I do maintain it still. But it's definitely more than a garden now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's amazing. Like a lot of these things we plant early on, you, you're waiting and waiting and waiting for them to produce. But when they do start producing, you're like, holy crap. You realize yeah. how much, you know, 20 trees produce a lot, even if they're smaller trees. Right. Well, I also wanted to do it uh, for some of the fruits, uh, some of the uncommon fruits, which are one of my specialties. 
is I wanted to do test marketing on some of them. So I wanted to have a little more than I could just, well, in this case, a lot more than I could <laughs> eat myself, but not not enough to make a, you know a self-sufficient financial farm, but just more but than to test to test the market's response. Yeah, yeah and it was quite gotcha. good. <laughs> cool. So. One of the things that we wanted to get you on about is, is really to talk about fruit because it's something you're, you're really known for. And I just want to say, you know, kind of a lead-off question, what's the most important first consideration uh, for our listeners out there that want to grow fruit? And, and most of our re- listeners want to do it, you know, naturally. What, what right. do they really need to think about? I think the most important thing is really assessing, you know, your climate and your site and then choosing fruits that are best adapted uh, and that this way you're not fighting Mother Nature the whole time, and uh, and it really makes things a lot things a lot easier. I mean, there's some fruits that I grow where basically you, you plant them, we didn't water them one year, you know, keep weeds at bay, keep uh, you know animals at bay, but then once they start bearing, basically some of the fruits I grow you do not have to do anything from there on except harvest. And and, you know, what- and there's other fruits that I grow just because I wouldn't recommend them to other people here in this particular spot, but I grow them just because since I write about them and I, and I like to grow a lot of different types of fruits where they take an amazing amount of effort. And even with all that effort, sometimes I get little or nothing. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, are there, so are there certain like, uh, you know, things that you would say go on the easy low maintenance list and certain things that go on the, the list of maybe you really don't want to, you know, mess with this unless you really are doing it because it's like something you're passionate about or you're doing research for? Yeah, and then just plan on, uh, you know, not necessarily getting a crop even every year <laughs> for these these others. I mean, the problem is, you know, I might as well disclose it, but uh, if you live in much of the east, eastern part of the country, and uh, you're going to pick the hardest fruit to grow, it would be apples. Okay. Unfortunately, when people think about planting fruit, the first thing they think about planting is apples. But uh, And, you know, I used to uh, be with Cornell University in fruit research. I worked for the USDA in fruit research. So so I have, you know, a pretty good background in, in fruit growing. And I grow apples. I do not have a good site for apples. Not only is it hard in the east, but my site is particularly bad because it's a low spot. And I have 6,000 acres of woods, not my own, <laughs> uh, right nearby, but uh, they harbors a lot of pests. So, you know, some years I'll, I'll do a lot of stuff with apples. I hardly get anything. That said, when I do get those times when I do get apples or what, what apples I do harvest are really good tasting. You know, it's interesting you say that because, like, I grew up in the northeast in, in central Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And, and growing any kind of an apple that was, like, you know, a recognized variety was really difficult. But then there were all these, uh, like, you know, we used to call them Johnny Appleseed trees because they were God knows from what, from where, of these tart cider-like apples that were probably some kind of, you know, tossed core or something. And those things did just fine. Yeah, I don't know. I think on some of those, if you look, you know, if it was in your on your property and you were looking at how much fruit you actually got that was actually edible, and surely for fresh eating, you might not think they did fine. Although there are, you know, some cases where, where they do. But generally... You know, in central Pennsylvania, or I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York, uh, apples that are untended uh, really don't leave much to eat. <laughs> I mean, maybe the reason is our expectation was so right. low and the tree was so huge and old. I mean, these trees were, you know, 50, 75-year-old yeah. trees. And, and there's also something about you come upon a tree somewhere, and uh, just because it's not something that you had to take care of and it's just so cool to come upon it, yep. you, you, know, you look at it a lot differently. But, you know, as I said, that said, there's so many other fruits that people don't even consider 
uh, that are easy to grow. And that's, that's really, if you want to grow fruit naturally and not spend a lot of time learning about how to prune a plant, learning about what pests there are, learning about, you know, what sprays, organic or otherwise, are needed to control the pest and exactly when you have to put them on, you still have a lot of fruit you can grow easily. So would you say that anyone can grow fruit in the U.S., just have to really think about what they're growing based on their region? Yeah, 100%. There's, there's a number of fruits wherever you are that you, that can be grown with little or no effort. If you were only like if you were in a situation where you could only grow one fruit, just one. <laughs> that's all you could do. I know that sucks because I mean I'm a variety guy too. No, but. no. People always ask me that, and, yeah. and and actually I have the answer only because uh, uh, there's one fruit that I really like and one fruit that's really easy to grow, and it can be grown just about everywhere in the country, and that is blueberries. Okay. I mean, you have to do certain things for blueberries because they do like uh, have special soil requirements. But no matter where you live, if you live somewhere where the where the soil isn't right for them, you can actually just excavate a hole, fill it up with the special mix, and plant blueberries in it. And I've known people in Colorado, for instance, where the soils really are not adapted to blueberries, and they do that, and they and they get uh, good crops. And then the other thing you have to do is uh, keep birds away. And the way I do that is I just have a walk-in area that's has permanent mesh on the side, and we cover it uh, while the fruits are ripening. And I harvest, I have only 16 blueberry plants, and from that, those 16 plants, I harvest about 200 quarts of blueberries. Well, and where are you at? I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York. New York, that's right. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, like, I'm in Arkansas. You couldn't ask for a a, a, a more different climate than, right. than the Hudson but Valley. You can definitely grow blueberries. We grow them like crazy. Yeah. You know, we get half the size of a grape. You know, and we yeah, get, pretty get much plants. anywhere you can grow them, and it's a it's a great tasting fruit. They're they're great looking plants. It's a healthful fruit. You don't have to spray them, and uh, and you can they're easy to freeze. We we eat half and we freeze the rest. So you eat them almost year round. And if you get a number of different varieties, we I have a few different varieties. So our harvest starts in mid June and goes into September. Yeah, and we do the same thing. We don't go quite that long, but we have like three varieties and yeah. it spaces out the harvest so that yeah. there's some fresh eating and some saving. And you mentioned freezing, and I mean, there some stuff needs to be blanched or messed around with. You throw them in a bag, you throw them in a freezer, right, right. Fun. and they also dehydrate really badass. Like it's like a blueberry raisin. Actually, I was considering that because I, I've never done that, and I do have a dehydrator. And uh, we have so many fruits this year, uh, you know, we can't keep free. Our freezer only has a certain size, so. We don't want to keep freezing. I'm going to try that, though. The only thing that we found that's kind of a pain in the butt with it is you kind of have to sit there with, like, a toothpick and prick them all before you uh, – oh. they don't they, – they will, but they don't come out as good. Right. Like, if you do that, if you've ever bought, like, um, you know, the, the dehydrated cranberries? Right. They, come, they call them craisins. They come out a lot like that. They're smaller, but they have that, that texture, and they come out beautiful. If you don't prick them, they're just not as – so I mean, if you have a kid around, you hey, sit here and prick blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my, my daughter's off. My daughter's off in college, and she wouldn't do that anyway. Yeah, my I, kids. Uh, I, my I think kids I might off. scrap that idea. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's something you might want to do a batch or two, but you wouldn't want to yeah. make it a plan for right. uh, huge amounts. But um, what are some other things that are that may be easy to grow? Oh, I mean, there's something like blackberries or another fruit uh, can be grown almost everywhere in the country because there's a lot of species and a lot of varieties. And uh, and basically they're easy to grow. The main thing with blackberries is just to prune them. You put a, a, a trellis system or not, but uh, pruning is really important for uh, uh, keeping pests down and making it easy to harvest. And for blackberries, I would definitely suggest there's a number of thornless varieties. 
I, as much as I love fruit, and the thorny ones do taste a little better, I just can't handle the thorns. So, <laughs> I understand. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, the primocane varieties? We can't grow them this far north, and really? uh, I know there's only two varieties. I know they came out of Arkansas. Yep, and um, they haven't been around that long, so there's only two varieties. So my guess is that I've never tasted them. My guess is that those two varieties probably aren't the best tasting of the varieties, but that in the future there will be some really good tasting ones. Have you tasted them? Yeah, actually, I grow some of them, and they they taste pretty good. I mean, they're not they're you know we we have wild blackberries everywhere here, and it, they're you you don't compete with that you know right. they're small and and a short window to harvest, but. The nice thing is if you treat them like a more typical blackberry, you get two crops out. Right, yeah. And that's that's really kind of cool. And I do a lot of, like, mead making and beer making, so... I do, too. You know, that that you can get a lot of uh, a lot of bang for your buck with. Well, well speaking of beer making, one thing I, that I throw in beer, I don't make a bonafide beer out of this, uh, you know, it's solely this, but it, I know there is a southern tradition for making it's persimmon. That's another oh, fruit yeah. you can grow just about anywhere in the country. And further south, I can't grow them. You can grow Asian persimmons. But even this far north, and up here it's gone down to a 30 below zero. And I grow American persimmons, but named varieties. So if anybody's ever tasted the wild ones, don't judge American <laughs> persimmon named varieties by what you tasted in the wild, because the ones I grow are among the most delicious fruits uh, that I grow. And, yeah. and that is a fruit that takes no care at all. And they're a great fruit, and they're very adaptable because you're growing them in the Hudson Valley. And then one of my other uh, guests that I've had on the past, Marjorie Wallcraft, is in you know South Central Texas. Oh yeah, growing right. persimmons. So I mean, that's a again this huge variety of climate types that you can deal with. Yeah, and you mentioned actually before wildlife. You know, wildlife. You know, you got to think that fruits they're sweet. They just like contained in this nice skin. So you know, there are potential problems with wildlife on any of these and you know pretty much people know the, the way to control uh, most wildlife but you know it might take some deer fencing you know for my blueberries I have uh, bird netting but wildlife is an important component I think of fruit growing uh, you know some and it's different in different places for instance I have all these pawpaw trees and uh, other people tell me uh, that you know some Pests, some like raccoons or something, would would eat their pawpaws. <laughs> Nothing uh, has touched my pawpaws. But yeah, you know, I do other things that yeah keep these pests in in check. What I've had issues with is peaches with squirrels and uh, don't mention squirrels. They <laughs> just they uh, my big problem with them is not only do they damage the fruit, but they don't really eat it. They take like one peach right. off, they eat like three bites, and they throw it on the ground. And then they also eat them sometimes when they're green and very yeah. young. Uh, I think squirrels are the biggest problem and will be the increasingly large problem in the future. And people really, because there's no no controls on them generally, uh, or not enough controls, natural controls. There is Brunswick stew. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I tell people, I take a multi-pronged approach to squirrels. I have, uh, first of all, uh, some of my properties mowed, and and, uh, so they're quite exposed when they run across mowed areas. and uh, I have two dogs, two cats, that helps a lot, seven traps, a good gun. <laughs> and then the other thing is uh, around, I grow a lot of nut trees too, so I have these filbert trees. And I notice that the squirrels don't run in high grass, so if you have a site where you can just mow around each tree but not but let the grass really get high, like it's a, it's a meadow all around there, uh, the, the squirrels really won't, through, won't run through that. And then yeah, the, like final, the final thing is, if you need to, is uh, you just train 
any trees, first of all, they have to be in isolation, but if you train them high so that there's nothing below six feet, and then you put a squirrel guard, you know, something uh, slippery, of, you know, sheet metal or uh, linoleum, something like that, around the trunk, they can't climb up it. Cool, cool. Yeah, because <laughs> they are a problem. They're... It seems like a lot of work, but as you know, like a fresh-picked, dead-ripe peach, oh. something you cannot buy. No, you can't. And it's, it's almost like people ask me, do you like peaches? And I'm like, what kind of peach? Right. Yeah. I, I you know, think store bought peach is just not a peach. Well, one of my pet peeves is people think that you can buy any fruit, say, in a market, and it'll be hard. And they think, well, take it, just leave it in your kitchen counter for a few days, and it'll soften. And they, people think that's ripening. That is not ripening. Ripening, I mean, the, the fruit will soften, and as it starts to, you know, part of the near uh, you know, incipient rotting process is that the starchy materials start to get sweeter. Sure. But that's not building up the aromas and the really true taste of a, of a, a plant, that, of a fruit that's been ripened on the plant. What are your thoughts about, like, season extension, especially, like, winter? Like, where you're at, the winters are much tougher than me, and making yeah. sure you have stuff to eat through the winter months. Well, first of all, the, as far as fruits, there's a lot of fruits uh, you can. I, I grow a lot of pears. Among the, the common tree fruits, pears are one of the easiest. If you once again, in that case, you choose varieties adapted to, to the pests of your area and uh, to the climate. But uh, pears can store through winter, just like apples. I have the frozen blueberries, uh, pawpaws. I can store till into November. Uh, persimmons go into November. You know, there's a time. I have to say, you know, January, February, or surely by uh, March and April, where I'm going to the supermarket and buying fruit. And then, but, you know, at that time also, maybe, you know, I tend to eat a lot more vegetables, and, and we do have vegetables year-round from here, both, you know, from what I put in common storage, what I put in the freezer, and then I have a small greenhouse, 20 by 20, that I keep very cool. And uh, and in the greenhouse, uh, we grow greens, Salad greens and and uh, and cooking greens all winter because they like the cool weather. Not to mention that like February is a great time to be drinking something like a blackberry or right. blackberry imperial stout, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool stuff, man. Um, how you know the other thing I should mention about the greenhouse? One one fruit a lot of people are, are really enjoy whether they live in the north or the south. Where you are, you could probably, I'm sure you can just plant fig trees outdoors. Oh yeah. Yeah, so when you get north of, uh, say, Pennsylvania, you really can't do that. You, you know, people wrap them up, bury them, do all these things out there, grow them in pots, and I've grown them in pots for many years. But since I have this greenhouse, it's a cool greenhouse. Uh, figs are actually subtropical fruits. They they lose their leaves and like a winter cold rest. So I have figs in the ground. They have six-inch trunks in this small greenhouse. And in the winter, and they also bear on new wood, so I can cut them back to about four feet or three, three to four feet. Mm-hmm. So in the winter, they're leafless. They're cut back to three to four feet. They're not shading the interior of the greenhouse at all. And then as spring comes, they start to grow. The greenhouse gets too hot for all these uh, uh, leafy greens. So in the summer, the, the, like right now, the, uh, it's mostly fig trees in the greenhouse. They're all full leaf, loaded with figs that are ripening. And then as it gets cooler and cooler, the leaves will start to drop. I have more and more greens planted in the greenhouse, so it's a nice cycle. It's sort of like a Mediterranean climate in there. And I can let, and since figs take a lot of heat, I can let the, the, I don't have to cool the greenhouse that much in the summer. I can let the temperature go, you know, 100 or more. Yeah, it's like you're creating that own little microclimate there. 
And fig yeah. is another thing that if you've never had a fresh fig, you don't know oh, what yeah. fig is. Yeah. You cannot ship a, a, a fig further than arm's length. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in a, and they're amazingly productive, too. I mean, down here we can. We can grow them into ver- fairly large trees. And yeah. My understanding is that they can live like 300 years or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Talk they about just, leaving something behind. Right. Yeah, they, they just keep going. What are some of your other, like, unusual things that are kind of maybe some of your favorites for ease of growth or just uniqueness? Uh, one thing, and this one really cannot be grown too far south because it's, it's a plant that likes uh, a really cool weather, is a gooseberry. And people think who, who, most people don't know gooseberry too well, and most people that do know them do know them think that they're all small, green, and tart. Uh, well, I grow gooseberries that are quite large. Some are red. And ones I grow, there's, there's in Britain where gooseberries are more popular, they have their culinary types and they have their dessert types. Since I don't cook that well with fruit, I grow the, only the dessert types. And these are the you know perfect fruits you just pop right in your mouth. They have great flavor and uh, they're easy to grow. Basically, uh, deer don't eat them. Uh, you know, no problems as long as you, once again, choose the right variety. And uh, there's a lot of other unusual fruits that I grow. Let um, me think of another one. Uh, there's some so unusual that I don't know. Oh, kiwi fruits. That's another one. Oh, yeah. So kiwi fruits, there's store kiwi fruits. Uh, you can grow f- further south. But where I am, it's too cold. But there's another kind called the hardy kiwi fruits. That the fruit, They're different than the store kiwi fruits in that, uh, first of all, they're hardy. You can grow them you know, as far north as you want. But the fruits are small. They're about the size of a grape, and they have a smooth skin. You pop them in your mouth. Tastes very similar to the uh, market kiwis, except that they taste better. <laughs> yeah, and they're like you said, you don't have to jack around with the the hairy uh, stuff right. on them. I was just up in Vermont at a guy named Ben Falks. Uh, oh yeah, no, I know him. I was actually uh, we there two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. He had. I was supposed to was for the uh, the workshop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was supposed to give a little talk there. I, was, I had been at the uh, the organic farming conference in Massachusetts just before, and I was going to go up there, but he won, He was setting up for that workshop, so I, he wanted me to come the next day, and I was going to do a little presentation, because I've never been to his place. I do know him, and uh, actually, I really didn't want to be away that long, so I came well, back. Well, that's funny, because he was mentioning somebody that was supposed to come and couldn't, and that was you. That's, <laughs> that that's was wild. Amazing. Yeah, I'd love to visit his place. It sounds, sounds awesome. He but gave he me some of that, you, I guess you saw his rice patties. Yeah. And uh, he gave me some seed, and my rice is just about ripening now. That's awesome. That's awesome to be, you know, I, I think we could be growing a lot of rice that far north, but you were mentioning the kiwis, and he uh, he has a, a two-story, really high timber frame house with a balcony on it that he's built, and he's got some hardy kiwis that he planted down on the ground, and you got to be talking 14 feet up to the balcony, and they've been in the ground now three years, and this year they're starting to and they're loaded with fruit, and they're 14 feet up and onto those balconies, and then growing up the house from there. So it's a it's amazing the vigor that those vines have. Well, I'm surprised uh, a lot of us in the east got there was a really early warming and then a late frost. That's one problem with the kiwis; they are very frost susceptible. And yeah. this year we had the you know very uh, significant warming and very significant frost. So this is one of the few years that I have no kiwi fruits. But that's the nice thing is I grow so many different types of fruits. So, uh, for instance, the apples got frosted this year too. But I have so many different types of fruit that there's just an abundance of fruit, even if I don't get some things from some some other fruit plants. 
And when you're when you just for people out there, when you're talking about getting frosted, you're talking about having basically the pollination disrupted. They lose their blossoms before right. They the blossoms pollinate. get frozen. It really depends on what stage they're in because if they're just past the pollination stage, they become a little less frost susceptible. But you know the, the kiwis were the kiwis actually was the shoots. They tend to not blossom early, but the shoots get frosted. But the apples were in the perfect stage to be uh, killed by the frost. Yeah, so sucks. next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you you mentioned pawpaws quite a bit. You're growing a bunch of different kind of pawpaws, and and I, you know I hear some people saying that like pawpaws are easy to grow and they actually get into production relatively quickly, and other people saying like it'll be 25 years before you see nah. a paw. What's that you? Well, for, well, first of all, if you, you know what the problem is that people there's two ways you can buy them. You know, you have certain varieties of plants like 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 Macintosh is a variety of apple, but yeah. if you plant an apple seed, that's just a seedling. Well, seedlings take a lot longer to bear than named varieties because named varieties, the propagating wood when you when you make a graft is mature. So if you plant a seedling, a lot of nurseries that don't really specialize in, in uncommon fruits or in pawpaws just sell seedling pawpaws. They'll give you a little plant, and it'll take 10 years to bear. Okay. But if you go to a specialty nursery that sells grafted trees of named varieties of pawpaw, there's a number of named varieties like Pennsylvania Golden, Zimmerman, uh, uh, Allegheny. So if you buy a grafted tree, that tree is propagated from wood that's already mature. So that tree will start to bear within three years. Okay. That makes sense to me. So I, I always suggest if somebody's going to plant pawpaws, definitely. And also you're more assured of the quality of the, of the tree then because, you know, the fruit will always be the same as whatever the variety is. So if you're going to buy pawpaws, same thing with American persimmons or persimmons generally, always buy a named variety. With most fruits, it pays to buy the named variety because sometimes one, name, one variety might be adapted in your area, another might not, and a seedling, it can be anything. I, I think another problem that people have, from my experience, has been that, especially as they start looking at forest gardening and things like that, they learn, okay, pawpaw is an understory tree. Uh-huh. And in the wild, you'll find it an understory, and it'll grow, and you know those trees might be 50 years old, for all you know, if they've grown there natively. And so they get this pawpaw, and then they stick it like under an oak or something. Yeah. And they say, well, it, it can live in the shade. Well, it can live, but it's going to have a much slower growth rate if it's fully shaded and it's not going to be as productive. But that's because an, they bred it's an understory, they stick it in there. Yeah, that is an excellent point. And uh, it's true it's an understory tree, but if you plant it in the sun, you, as you just said, you get much, much more production. A good, another good example of that is blueberry. Blueberries in the wild often grow in the shade. And, uh, but if you plant them in the sun, and the key is that you want to give them good soil and water as needed, they're much, much more productive than, than wild ones in the shade. And a lot of the shade stuff, too, I try to look at it more as an edge plant than a shade plant. So it's in the shade, but it's not in the middle of the dark forest. Right, right. It's usually on a sunny edge, so it gets filtered, modeled shade. And and that can give it some rest in like the really intense periods of time, but it gets a lot of sun, and I think people misunderstand that a lot. Yeah, the only fruits really that can uh, comment, you know, actually the only fruits I would say that really do well in, in pretty deep shade, are gooseberry, red currant, and black currant. Those yeah. plants really, and especially when you go further south, uh, they'll enjoy it even more because because uh, it'll keep them cooler. But they, yeah. I've seen them fruiting in, in you know as deep shade as you can imagine. Yeah, I've got this, the the uh, north side of my house, it's completely shaded, I would say, 90% of the day. It gets me yeah. an hour, hour and a half of sun, and I've got uh, some currents over there, and they're doing fine. Yeah. yeah and they're, they're productive. It's crazy. But, but anywhere else, they would probably die down here. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I, I really dig like the, uh, the unusual thing. So maybe I'll throw some other ones at you and see what your experience is. Okay. How about goji berry? Ooh, goji berry I have grown and, uh, I grew it for three years. I got two different plants, uh, and there are, they are all seedlings. There are no named varieties of goji berry. So I got two different, uh, plants, uh, from two different nurseries and I planted them a few years ago. One plant actually bore a couple of fruits that sort of had a decent taste, and the other one uh, bored later, and uh, they did not taste so good. Uh, I finally pulled them all out, though, and the reason is uh, a few reasons. One is the fruit really doesn't taste that good, so I'm not going to grow it. Second thing is the things sprawl all over the place. They send these long shoots that root at their tips, and they have thorns on them, and the third thing is that uh, they fruit very sporadically. They sort of blossom sporadically throughout the summer, and then sometimes the, the blossoms will set fruit, sometimes they won't. And then the final thing is that uh, they are members of the deadly nightshade family, which, okay. you know, uh, you know, admittedly tomato, pepper, eggplant, and pepper are, uh, are also. But uh, I'm always a little wary about eating uh, uncommon fruits in the nightshade family. Gotcha. gotcha. So I pulled it out, and actually, even that's not that easy because the place where I had it was a little overgrown with other stuff too. And I thought I had pulled it all out this spring, and now I see it's as if I have a whole new plant now again. So <laughs> there is to something out. to be said for that uh, right. ability to survive. But I think it, mostly it's used as a medicinal by a lot of people. Right. right. Yeah, I'm really into fruit for flavor. I got you. I got you. What and I figure they all they're all health, helpful. Yeah. What about Gumi? Gumi, actually, Gumi, I do have a couple of plants of, and this is a plant I really like. It's uh, first of all, it's quite ornamental. The blossoms really smell good in the spring, and the fruit ripens in in uh, July here, and it has like a flavor that's almost that's really too tart, but it also has this really nice component. So so I'll eat it. And like I'll shudder at the tartness, but then I'll think, oh, that's pretty good. So, you know, so I'll sort of spit it out, but then I'll take another one. That's a fruit that it would be really nice if somebody wanted to breed them a little. There, yeah. there was a, a yearbook of agriculture, 1937 yearbook of agriculture, Dr. George Darrow, who's really one of the greats in uh, fruit uh, research and breeding. He wrote a chapter called Some Unusual Opportunities in Fruit Breeding. And he mentioned a lot of these fruits that he thought just, you know, they're really good now and just a little more improvement, they could really become good. And Gumi was one of them. And uh, I wish somebody would do that. What, what I like about them is, they're, one, they're a nitrogen fixer. So right, they kind of fill that role. Um, and two, that tartness, again, I'm always thinking of what I can stick into beer. And Ooh, maybe I'll... I'll, I'll try that. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking a Gumi wheat beer should just be uh, kind of badass. And I'm a, my my family's Ukrainian, so it's a, it's a Ukrainian. Uh, oh, so you must oh. you must do you know about Cornelian cherry? Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to ask you about that. Um, finishing up on the Gumis before we move on, though. The so thing about basically, them, basically, it's easy to grow. A pretty plant, easy to grow. It does like sun, and beyond that, sun and you know reasonably well drained soil. You know, you don't have to do anything to it. The oh, one bad. thing you do have to do is harvest quickly because the birds seem to get them quickly. Yeah, they they don't have any problem at all with the tartness. The, the only thing I've had a problem with is trying to propagate them, and the only way I've been able to do it is basically with air rooting because if you take cuttings, they just, like, you get, like, 1 in 12 to root, but I'll take small plastic bottles and put them on to yeah. the branch, fill that with potting soil, and then I can get that to root and then cut it, and I get a survival rate of about 9 out of 10 that way. And will they, so they'll, 
they have to do that within the growing season. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. put you want to put that on there right as they start to bud out. Pick a limb you want to take a cutting yeah. from, and then you take it all the way into uh, leaf fall, and then then take that cutting right. and plant it off. Other the other the other thing you could do that would would I'm sure work is uh, you could you could just dig up suckers from around the base of the plant, or if you if you wanted to uh, really get into more uh, heavy propagation, cut the plant to the ground, an established plant. Yeah. And then as new, and then uh, mound a little mixture of like a loose mix of soil or soil and sawdust on top of the plant. And as the shoots grow, you keep mounding it up, and then yeah. mo- those shoots will form roots at their bottom, and you'll get a lot of shoots from that one. Kind of like throwing whipstock for grafting. I never yeah. really thought about that. That's a great idea. Yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't mention this, but there's a related plant that it's also quite tasty. Uh, the plant's autumn olive. And uh-huh. People hate it because it's an invasive plant. Yeah. But, you know, I have to say, yes, it is invasive. I will admit that. But it, is, uh, it has all those qualities of gumi, except the fruit ripens in the in the fall. And if you catch autumn olive fruit, I know you probably get, I'll probably get some hate mail from this now. No, you won't. Not people here. <laughs> but anyway, but if you catch, there's a two-week, I have a, a niece that likes them even when they're super tart. But there's yeah. a two-week period in the fall that the uh, autumn olive fruits, they are delicious. I brought them to a to a, a dinner that I was invited to, and I actually grow some yellow varieties too, name varieties, and I mixed the red and the yellow ones in a bowl, and people just gobbled them up. I didn't tell them what they were. I used the, actually the uh, the Japanese name, Akigumi, which means autumn silverberry. Yeah. Because I didn't want them to, I thought maybe if I said they were autumn olives, I'd have to defend them. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool, and I mean, I'll, I'll just quote you know Marjorie Wildcraft again, where she said, "If something fixes nitrogen or is edible, please invade us." Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, right. they and, can go a little crazy, but that's I think why people like the, the the Gumi is it's the same family and it doesn't it doesn't reproduce very well, at least here in the United right. States. You, right. you might, Actually, yeah, I, I had I've it. written about it uh, you know with some frequency and. One person, uh, you know, there's like 20 years of writing about, told me that they thought it was spreading a little where they lived. But that's uh, that's the only place I've ever heard of this. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Cornelian cherry. I, I, I bought three of those this year. I got one through this. I got one died through the summer. The other two have made it. And I'm kind of limping them along, but it's uh, first year with them. What are your thoughts on those? And am I trying to do something a little in a too warm of a climate? No, I think they would grow there. They're actually from they grew in the Med- they grow in the Mediterranean region. That's what it, I read. So, so, yeah. so, so it's a species of dogwood, and uh, it was actually a very popular fruit uh, in in seven you know thousands of years ago. It was uh, popular in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece. And actually, if you have a chariot and you need a new axle, this is the wood to use for it. Super oh, wow. hard wood. <laughs> but uh, the fruit uh, really is the plant is really grown almost exclusive, exclusively as an ornamental now. But uh, in certain parts of the region, like the Ukraine, it's still grown as a dooryard fruit tree. And if you want to stand in for a tart cherry, one that's much much easier to grow than tart cherry, uh, this is it. And the nice thing about it is it blossoms here. It must blossom really early where you are. But yep. here in the Hudson Valley, in Zone Five, blossoms the first day of spring, and no matter how many frosts we have, I don't know how the plant does it, but I've not ever not had a crop on that plant. Wow. And the one thing that you, that uh, people often don't know is that it's uh, partially self-fruitful, so you get better yields with two different varieties, and there are named varieties available in this one, but a lot of people just plant seedlings. Yeah, I've got two, and I think was one was Big Apple Cosa, and oh. I can't remember the other one. 
but they were definitely different yeah. varieties. And I yeah, think the one I lost was one of the common, so there, I still have two different varieties. Yeah, and they'll, and they'll bear yeah. very quickly. I would say, like, in a couple of years, you'll start to yeah. improve from it. One more before we move on to talk about a few of your books. Nanking Cherry. Uh, that's, if you want the easiest cherry to grow. First, let me just talk about the downside. The downside to the plant is that the fruits are small, and the stem stays on the plant when you pick them, so it leaves sort of a hole so you can't chip them at all. But for just home use, it is a great fruit. You, uh, you need two different plants. There are no named varieties, but you need two different seedlings for uh, cross-pollination. But beyond that, this plant will take any amount of heat, uh, cold. And uh, there's another plant that where I am, it blossoms mid-April and always gets exposed to late frost, always a big crop. And people often ask me, they say, what about uh, birds or squirrels or anything like that? Well, uh, my plants, and I do have about 10 plants, uh, the birds eat them, the squirrels eat them, the chipmunks eat them, I eat them, <laughs> and they bear so heavily that after everything's eaten them, it still doesn't look like a dent has been made in the crop. The, the, the fruits bear so heavily that the stems, you can hardly see the stems. Yeah, yeah. And, and besides that, they have beautiful white flowers in the spring. People stop. I have them along my driveway. And people stop, uh, you know, on a bike or something, and they uh, and they stop and ask me what the plant is. It's so pretty. Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea how tough these things are, I have an area that I'm working on in the in the Washington Mountains. It's very rocky. It's not a great environment to do any of this stuff, but I'm doing it anyway. When I dug holes to plant all my trees I did this year, it, it seemed like more rocks came out of the hole than the size of the hole. Uh -huh. And I did three of these. Not only did they, you know, survive with very little maintenance, they actually produced a few freaking cherries, and they're just seedlings, and there's like, you know, one hanging off the side. Um, and I would say they've doubled in size this year. Yeah. If the main thing is to get them off to a good start. And then once once they're established, they are no care at all. Every once in a while, I, I uh, prune mine back a little just because they'll get too big. They'll, they can get like 8 or 10 feet tall and, you know, and, and quite wide. So I just prune them back, but uh, they don't have to be pruned. And it seems like another one of these things, yeah, I'm in Arkansas, you're in the Hudson River Valley, we're both able to do this. So it's, yeah. it's very oh, yeah. adaptable. I would say this is everywhere. And uh, I think that was another one of the fruits in that 1937 uh, yearbook of agriculture, and Cornelian Cherry was also. Awesome, awesome. So let's chat about a few of your books, because you've actually got quite a few books. I was mentioning to you, um, uh, I was like, I know, I know this guy's name. And then I realized, uh, sitting on my bookshelf right here in the office, I have a copy of the pruning book. Uh, which is one of your books. Yeah, yeah. I wrote the pruning book, and uh, a lot of these uh, unusual fruits are in the book uh, that I wrote called Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. Originally published uh, in the early 90s, but then I revised it and added some more fruits, and it was republished in uh, 2004, and I updated all the information. And that, that's got a lot of these fun, unusual, easy-to-grow, often ornamental fruits in it. Awesome. Let's see. We had some. Uh, I'm looking at the description on that. One of them that we didn't talk about here, but I really like is Maypop. Yeah, I actually really like that too. Just wish I got better yield. This is really pushing the uh, limit for Maypop here. But that's it's a passion fruit that you can grow, and it makes this tropical tasting fruit. And it's a beautiful. The flower will take your breath away. So even yeah, if it's it, I, would, I would grow it even if it didn't fruit. Yeah, they're they're absolutely gorgeous flower. Now here's one I don't know, and I'm always intrigued when I don't know something. What is Shapova? Oh, Shapova, that's a very unusual one. Very good tasting fruit. It's a, a cross of European pear with a plant called white bean, which is uh, closely related. It's a type of mountain ash. And it uh, looks pretty. It has like this whitish cast to the leaves when they open in spring. And the fruit is sort of like a small 
pear with a meaty texture of what I what I would consider the, the ideal fruit. Say if you're going for a walk on a nice uh, crisp fall day, you put a few of those in your pocket, and it sure. really has a nice flavor. I'm gonna have to look into those. I've, yeah. That's one, you know. I, I sit here and I'm reading, you know, Jujubee, Juneberry, Maypop. Like, yeah, I know that, know that. I guess, oh, I'm like, I right. never heard of that. How many, how many different varieties is in that book? You, uh, I think it's about two dozen. Wow. And then in in my other, I should mention also my other book, uh, my new book is uh, Grow Fruit Naturally, and this list, yeah, sure, not as much detail on those uncommon foods, but I also list of um, more familiar fruits like apple which I suggest growing in certain parts of the country, or you can try it in other parts. Uh, but everything from apricot to citrus to uh, strawberry so it has pretty much basic information, uh, both background information on the fruits themselves, but also how to prune fruits, uh, different approaches to pests and diseases, and planting and planting, everything pretty much. And the big thing is naturally uh, yeah. out of that book as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, for our folks that are trying to be as self-sufficient as possible, it's not just about the health. Uh, one of their big concerns is if I'm not doing it naturally, then I need a lot of outside inputs. If I need a lot of outside right, inputs, right. I'm not self-sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And not to mention, you know, this sort of takes some of the appeal out of a fruit if you know it's just been sprayed with some poisons. Doesn't it always, you know, kind of strike you as odd when you see these guys out there doing these heavy spraying and they have like this mask on and this protective suit and they're spraying food that you're going to eat in a few right, weeks right. and you're yeah, just like, yeah. I don't think that that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, and I'm very familiar with that because as I said, when I worked, I worked for Cornell. It was many years ago, and uh, so I used to go into the orchards a lot, and you know, I see them spraying, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, basically a cloud of pesticide uh, covering all the trees. And a wonderful sound of, ah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I'll pass on that. Uh, you also have another book called Weedless Gardening. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, basically, uh, this, uh, I have, uh, my, my academic training is in both uh, horticulture and I have a degree in uh, soil science, too. And uh, that really gave me an appreciation for soil. So, so one of the, you know, Key elements in my whole uh, farm thing is uh, soil care, and uh, I, for instance, you know, and it's really not rocket science. A lot of it's just a lot of organic matter. So I make a lot of compost. But I, but I, when I just got into this many, many years ago, I started thinking about weeds, and this is some people always talk about, and why do we have so many weed problems? So I, I don't like to say I came up with the system, but I sort of synthesized a lot of what I had uh, read of others. And the experience of others, plus what I was experiencing, and came up with a nice system, a four-part system that really, really lessens weed problems. So they're not really a problem. This is not. This isn't to say there aren't any weeds, but they're not particularly a problem. Would you say a big part of that is quit freaking turning the soil over yeah. all the time? Yeah. Okay. So I, I have an, in my <laughs> vegetable gardens, and I have about 2,000 square feet of vegetable gardens outside the greenhouse, and uh, I have not turned the soil in those gardens for. Uh, uh, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and basically what I do is you know I have permanent beds that I never walk on, and uh, and they get layered with compost every year. And the thing with me with that approach is even when you do get a weed, you just pick it up and it just freaking comes right out. It's yeah, not, and you don't have to spend that much time dealing with the weeds either. They're just uh, not that many. And I have a rule with my wife. There is no such thing of a weed. There's only free mulch. Um, <laughs> oh, I love that. That's that's also revenge. 
Yeah. All my, all my weeds uh, go into my compost pile. Yeah. Yeah. Or so, you could you could mulch with them. Yeah, I mean that's what we just you know as long as they don't have seed heads on them, we just pull them out and throw them right on the top of the bed. Yeah. I mean that's it's it's direct and it's easy and it's. I, I don't like to do any more work than I have to. I'm not afraid of work, but I don't like to do it yeah. for, for no point. Well, you know, also, well, one thing that's also important, I think, is to keep it enjoyable and sustainable in the sense, you know, people batter around the word sustainable all sorts of ways. And uh, one thing I think part of sustainable for me is to make it so I want to and I can keep, uh, you know, taking care of all these plants. And if I don't have a good system, I'm not going to be able to do it. Now, on one more book, I wanted to chat with you a bit about, because you used the word on, on a couple of different flowering trees and the berries is beautiful. And there's no reason this stuff can't be beautiful. So you have another book, came out in 2009, called Landscaping with Fruit. And I, yeah. I think it's sad that, like, it seems to me like most, uh, what do you call them, the, like the consultants and landscapers and all have gotten to the point where, like, they don't want to plant anything with fruit because fruit is, is waste. It falls to the ground. You right. know? Or like, they plant crab apples that can't be eaten. Yeah, and, and I'm uh, like, what kind of arrogant country calls food garbage? I just so, but you have this whole book on how we can use the the the, the tree itself, the leaves, the colors of the fruit, the blossoms as part of the landscaping for for beautiful purposes as well. Yeah, well, I started out uh, well when I used to work uh, for Cornell. I uh, was always amazed how beautiful the apple trees were in spring, and I started thinking, well, just maybe should uh, like uh, think of some other things apples and other fruits that could be used for landscaping. It turns out apples were not good since they have so many pest problems, but there's a lot of fruit. So the first thing I did was uh, uh, the uh, along my driveway, I mentioned uh, the Nanking cherries that I have. I used to have forsythia. So the first thing I did, I had planted the forsythia, and about two years later, even though you know they blossom, look pretty every year, I figured, you know, plant Nanking cherries. They're just as pretty, plus I got tons of fruit. Yeah, and talk about pretty, like you were saying when we were talking about those, are just, they're just gorgeous. The flowers yeah. are like, wow. Yeah, it's solid canes of flowers. Very cool. Now, you also have a blog on your yeah. site? Yeah, and the blog sort of recounts what's happening day to day or week to week on the farm in here. Very cool. And I see a picture of you there and all your books, and, and all of that stuff's located at, at uh, com. Well, the blog is at uh, com. Okay. And from that, you can get to my website, which is uh, com, or from my website, you can get to my blog. Great. So I'll make sure I put links to all of that stuff in the show notes as well. And oh, good. Folks, I'm going to really recommend, um, first of all, I've got a lot of questions about pruning. That's why I have the pruning book. And if you want to know, uh, get it. I'm going to get a copy of the Uncommon Fruits book. I imagine you'll hear a lot about a lot of things I've been telling you about over the years in that book. And so check out Lee's books because I think that uh, yeah, it's probably one of the one of the main ways he pays the bills. And uh, he's been good enough to spend all this time with us. And definitely check out his site and follow his blog. And, and with that, Lee, man, thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, plant these fruits and these self-sufficient fruits. And I'll throw out a little, little plug for you. Uh, Lee's available for lecturing, consulting, and, and writing. So if you have need of any of that, get in touch with him. Thanks. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Lee Wright, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we 
Nobody up there cares. They're living for. 